Josh here. If you listen back to our introductions episode, you'll notice that one of my goals with this podcast was to interview creators about the works we want to discuss on the show. Well, here we are. After one failed attempt at an interview for Milestone Media, I was fortunate enough to have an interview come through. It's my first interview I've done. It was incredibly nerve-wracking, and it's one of those things where after it was done, I was beating myself up for not asking follow-up questions or forgetting things I was hoping to bring up um, during the interview. It was a learning process for me. Um, it still is. Hopefully, I have more chances in the future to do it and improve. Um, certainly no John Sinches from Word Balloon, and I probably never will be. That dude has it down. However, I'm glad that this creator was willing to take the time out of his busy schedule to discuss an event from almost 30 years ago to make it more exciting for me. And thus partly why I struggled in their interview is that this is the man who helped shape my favorite hero in Superman. Someone who had such a major part of who he was in the nineties and what made me a fan to comics in general to take it one step further, it was his artwork on Superman number 80 that caught my eye and gravitated me towards comics in the first place. Without him, it's very possible I wouldn't be a fan and this podcast wouldn't even exist. I debated on the best time to drop this episode. It wasn't going to be until next month and our zero hour episode is still going to be put out then just because we already have a couple episodes lined up and... We've already kind of screwed up the continuity of everything as it is. But he also put out two books recently for DC in Generations Shattered and Generations Forged. And I want to have that acknowledged now as opposed to a month from now. So please give those a read. It's a lot of fun. It's cool to see characters from different timelines interact. And my personal favorite thing from the books is seeing a villain that I was not expecting to ever see again so without further ado i would like to introduce into the hyper time the man has such an impressive resume in comics he's worked on books like warlord justice league of america zero hour the sensational spider-man the mighty thor captain america superman booster gold new 52 futures end batman beyond nightwing and as i mentioned generations shattered and generations forged and that's just scratching the surface he is credited as creating a beloved time-hopping character in Booster Gold, the son of Superman and John Kent, the protectors of time and Wave Rider and the Linear Men, the Superman killer Doomsday, and the one who would go on to become a major Superman and Green Lantern villain off of that event in the cyborg Superman Hank Henshaw, and so many more. He was also the brainchild behind one of the biggest events in comics history in killing and resurrecting Superman in the death and return of Superman arcs in the 90s. It was also because of this event that he was awarded the National Cartoonist Society Award for Best Comic Book back in 1994. It is both one of my biggest fanboy moments and an absolute honor to welcome into the hyper time with my first interview, and hopefully not my last, the amazing and wonderful 
Dan Jurgens as we discuss his 1994 mainline event, Zero Hour. Today, um, I basically just kind of wanted to go over Zero Hour in particular. Sure. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of go over what the genesis of Zero Hour was, like how it came to be. Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, in in terms of, there, there are sort of like two stories, and one is how it came to be for me, and then how it came to be a real project at DC. And one of the things that had been happening is that we had seen the DC heroes aging quite a lot uh, in their books. You know, we had seen, if you go back to that time, uh, we had seen Green Arrow, Oliver Queen, celebrate his birthday in his own title a couple of times with the age listed. You know, whether it was 44, 45, 46 or whatever, we saw Oliver Queen getting older. We saw Hal Jordan getting older um, because remember back then he had the gray hair and the temples and everything like that. Right. And as they were getting older, clearly some of the younger heroes were getting older as well. Obviously, sort of that um, first wave of Titans characters like Dick and Donna and Wally, we were seeing them age. We were seeing groups of younger characters come in who were aging as well. And altogether, that meant that the Justice Society characters who were at that time getting farther and farther and farther past World War II were aging as well. So with all of that, what we were starting to run into were some continuity issues within the DCU. And and it and I don't think we ever have to be slaves to continuity, but I think there has to be kind of an internal logic that works. And the mm-hmm. internal logic would suggest that, gee, if all those guys are getting older, then Batman is getting older and Superman is. And where does that leave us on everything? So what Zero Hour became in my head was a way to address some of that and a way to address some of the other problems that had gotten hopelessly, I think, bogged down, like Hawkman and the Legion of Superheroes and a couple of other things. And there was there had to be a way to streamline it. So that's kind of where it started in terms of my thinking it just so happened that um, there were there had been a couple of discussions at DC, um, mostly kind of led by Casey Carlson, who was an editor at the time, who was also pointing out the same sort of things on staff. And so we got together and and kind of started to pull our thoughts together, and and started to say we have a way to deal with this, and and that's how Zero Hour started. Okay, and. I think I remember reading in like a wizard magazine that one of the things that popped up for you was using, I think it was Hawkman in a a justice league story or a Superman story where there was a arc where Hawkman takes Superman back to Krypton. And then when you were going to use them again, the Hawkman team basically told you that that didn't happen. Is that correct? Yeah. I, you know, uh, Without saying that is 100% accurate, I, I do remember that being an issue at the time and something that we had to discuss, and it did highlight the problems, um, and, and it became clear that Hawkman, for example, was a bit of a particular bugaboo 
just so far as all of that went, that we just, it, and it was a, a classic point that just helped to illustrate uh, the problems that were there overall. Now, were the DC offices a bit different back then in terms of how tight they were with continuity? How do you mean? Um, like, I feel like as an outsider, as a fan, I feel like things have gotten so tight that they're more careful with how things are implemented in their books. Were things a little bit more freeform back then as to like, no, you can't do this. Yes, you can do this. If that makes any sense. I don't know that I would say that. I think what it was is <clears throat> um, it, what, what sort of happens within the context of a universe of comics, a universe of superheroes and characters, as you will, you can start out nice and tight with a fairly narrow lane like this. But as you publish more and more books, as time goes on, it starts to fray at the edges and it kind of goes like that. Mm -hmm. and, and pretty soon what happens is an element that straight up over here is in conflict with another one that is down here in the opposite corner. And as I said earlier, we do not have to be slaves to continuity. I think you can have some conflicts, but then there comes a point where it sort of goes over the line. And I don't think it's good to always have this situation where you're sort of fighting yourself. I don't think readers need every single I to be dotted and every T to be crossed. But I do think they want to have, when they read a universe, a sense of how things fit together and a little bit a sense of what is the logic here. And for example, when um, we launched the New 52, one of the questions I kept asking is, well, how do these characters relate to each other? I was working on Green Arrow at the time, and I said, okay, Oliver and Hal, had they gone on their road trip? Had this happened in their past? And at first I was told yes, and we started working under that assumption. And after we had a couple of issues done, we were then told no. And if, if you can't decide on staff what the answers to those types of questions are, then you can't expect the readers to know and they're not going to stop asking. That's what everybody thinks, right? You know, it, right. we don't have to tell them. We'll figure it out. No, they keep asking. That's the marketplace. And that's what happens. So I, I think you want to have some sense of context for it. Kind of in line with that is that when like something like the New 52 came up, was the whole timeline more structured than... I guess the problems that would come up would seem to indicate. Cause I know when zero hour is done, you guys posted that poster of the complete breakdown of the DC universe and everything. So I was just curious how, when you went about doing the whole timeline with zero hour, how that compared to new 52, which also kind of restructured the whole thing as well. I have never seen a published uh, timeline really as tight as what we did with Zero Hour. Um, you know, what the, the funny thing is, when, when we talked about, when we first had the idea of doing some kind of timeline at the end of Zero Hour, it's amazing how much work goes into something. <laughs> you know, we said, okay, we want to do it. And it was based a little bit on the idea that um, years earlier, uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez had done this wonderful history of the DC Universe which kind of built a timeline. It just wasn't in one graphic, sort of like we did it. To this day, I am always amazed at, you know, when I'm doing a convention, the amount of people who will come up 
and have me sign that timeline. You know, it always happens. And um, I think it's because it was great because people could look at it and, and suddenly get a feel for how the history of what was a complex universe had flowed from the beginning on through uh, the present and how everybody sort of fit together. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of context. Readers like to know just the generalities of how these characters fit together and when when um, when they might have show, first showed up relative to the stories that they're seeing, because then they can place it in context with, okay, so that's what the Justice League was doing at that time or something like that. Um, in actuality, I think the New 52 really could have used something like that. And it would have been great if we had had like a side project that did that. Um, because again, I'm one of those who's convinced readers just like to know these things. I agree. Um, so when you did come up with Zero Hour about like how far ahead were you planning all this out before the book started dropping? Oh, well, remember, it would have had to have been out or planned well before the book came out because the book was weekly. And and yeah. if you go back to that time, you know, it was five issues that, that shipped in five weeks, as well as all the connected books, too. And and I think that's one of the elements that made it so successful is it was big, it was ambitious, and it happened in a very condensed amount of time. And I think that served us well as well, that, that you know, we had a lot to plan as we were working on it because, you know, I've got to say, uh, I don't know that you could find um, a situation now where one person would write and draw a massive crossover like that. I don't even know if you can find much of a situation where one person will write and just another person draw it. Although, I got to say, uh, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo just did a fantastic job with the death metal stuff. I mean, they're there all the time mm -hmm. in the bell. Um, so it was very ambitious at the time, but... Because it came out in such a short amount of time like that, Josh, it proves that, yes, we had to have all that planned well before the first issue came out. I mean, <laughs> really, um, before that first issue even shipped, we pretty much had the last issue done. Awesome. I mean, yeah, as a fan, that's kind of one of the biggest killers of momentum, especially with event books, are the delays. And so something that I always appreciated with your work in particular was, you know, not only the quality, but how timely you are with everything, where it ever always felt like everything was, you know, exactly when it needed to be, how well it needed to look and all that. So how is your approach to Zero Hour different to other big events um, that you could release five issues in a span of a month without delays like that? A lot of it is planning. I mean, it's, it's just like anything in life. If it's well-planned and organized in the beginning, it makes it much more uh, possible to achieve. And that's what we did, where we said, all right, here's when it's going to ship. Here's how it's going to ship. Let's work backwards and get our um, schedule together. So we were able to build backwards from that. And I was able to dive right into it you know, with uh, several months advance notice in order to get it done. And at the same time, it, it also allowed for us to, I think, properly prepare the zero hour issues that reflected what we were doing. Because, you know, a very main part of this was those zero issues. We're, we're, what I told all the other creative teams was, you know, this is it. 
you are going to get a high uh, sampling of readers picking up your book who have not picked it up before. And in that issue, you want to, you want to show them who your characters are, why they do what they do, how they do what they do, and and just drop enough in that book at each individual zero issue that makes the readers want to come back and get the next one. And and I think um, that's really a key part of what it is that that we started to build. And all of that just meant that we had to start early enough to get it done. And then when it came to, there are certain characters in Zero Hour that went through some pretty major changes. Was that all decided on with you and the teams at the time? Um, I guess I'm trying to figure out when, like if those changes were in place that you decided to work them into the story or were those changes that were made in the story that the teams then had to kind of work in their own books. Guy Gardner, for instance, getting his like Voldarian look versus his like red armor type mm-hmm. of look. Um, can you kind of go into like how those deci- decisions were decided upon and how you kind of worked them into your story versus them working into the monthly books? Sure. Well, to use Guy uh, as a specific case, in in his case, that was the decision that his creative team and his editorial team came up with. And what I said is, I'll set the table for everybody. I'll, I'll give you the means to do what it is that you want to do with each of your books and each of your characters. Um, and if you come up with something great, and if you don't, I have other ideas. And so it was a little more uh, case by case than that. It, there isn't necessarily one pervasive or all encompassing answer that addresses each character. Guy Gardner, very specifically, that was his creative team and editorial team. Other characters uh, came about more based on something I might have suggested um, or, or something that the um, editorial team itself had come up with and wanted to see implemented. In, in a case like that, you know, you're talking about an entire line of books all of which, with the exception of Superman and whatever, that I'm not writing. So each character's creative teams were obviously invited to participate and potentially come up with anything that had to happen. Other characters didn't need any repair at all. So that was just fine. But it's, you know, whenever you get into a project of that nature, Josh, I think what I'm trying to emphasize is there's there's never a one-size-fits-all solution, and it came from different places. I'm glad you also bring up Superman because around that time, uh, DC was uh, doing a crossover with Milestone with the Worlds Collide storyline. Did you have any problems with those with Zero Hour and Worlds Collide kind of butting heads in terms of how that all worked together? No, because I don't think they they butt butted heads at all, except for just being out around the same time. Um, there again, if if you look at sort of the realities of the 90s and and the way things happen. I mean, we were at that time an industry that really could have a lot take place. You know, it, it's like this company would have its event. This one would have its. You could have a couple of different things happening at companies. I mean, there was more, I think, energy overall than what I see now. I think there was more of an effort than what I see now to really make some big things happen. And I, I think as a result, readers were a little more into it than that. Um, 
one of the other things I ran across as I was doing research for Zero Hour is that you had mentioned that time travel was a bit more restrictive at the time. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what those restrictions were and like why they were put into place? Well, you know, coming out of uh, Crisis on Multiple Earths, there were a lot of things that were set in place in the DC universe that were designed to be somewhat um, constricting. So, for example, uh, as I recall, you know, there was uh, uh, sort of this dictum that had come out that said uh, we are only going to have, I think it was, two fictional uh, cities in the DC universe, Metropolis and Gotham City. After that, if you had a hero in another city, that city had to be a real city, say like Chicago, no central city, no midway city, you know, things like that. Obviously, that was done away with a short time later. Right? I mean, it, it just it became one of the, those ideas that didn't necessarily work because, again, you you can say, "Gee, all of a sudden we don't have a central city," right? But but then what happens is you've got half a million readers out there who all remember Central City and want it back, you know, and that's right. that's sort of the reality of what happens. And eventually those cities return. Um, by the same token, there was a measure uh, regarding timeline that came out and it felt that time travel had gotten too cheap and easy in the DC universe. So as a result of Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, time travel had gotten restricted a bit to say, and I think the way it was worded was that a character could only travel through time three times mm-hmm. by three different methods. So one each. So the flash got on the cosmic treadmill, he could do it once and once only kind of thing. And if he got zapped into the future through magic, that was his second option. It, it was something like that. It was, it was all designed to be restrictive. And part of what happens is you tell a bunch of creators that they're restricted on something. And the first thing they, they want to do, I mean, this is only natural is to say, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'll figure my way out around that one because that's who we are. That's what we do. I feel like you in particular really love time travel stories. I mean, you have, you create Booster Gold, who is, <laughs> you know, considered one of the best time travel characters in comics. Um, did that really, I guess, not only just bother you in terms of limiting the stories you could tell, but um, I guess the creative process of, I guess, what you could do in general? Well, I think, I think what bothered me about it is that it would have affected me more than it affected other characters. Uh and other books. It's it's sort of like saying, yeah, right. Most DC characters can't breathe underwater. That's fine. But don't tell Aquaman that, right? Right. I mean, Aquaman has to be able to breathe underwater. And by the same token, uh, Booster Gold has to be able to travel through time. That's who that character is. That's very much a part of his background. It's his origin. It's why he's here. I mean, you go through all those things and you realize, okay, once again, it's not that, that this goes back to what I said earlier, we're not all solutions fit every character. And so that was a, a part of that. It, it was, so it was a kind of a rule that affected Booster more so than others. And, you know, and I think that's another one of those things then that becomes problematic. Were you wanting to use Booster more in Zero Hour? Uh, not so much. No, I, I mean, I, I thought that, uh, in going back to zero hour, 
and looking at who the main characters were going to be and how it was going to work, I thought that was um, a vehicle where the characters we did use as being more prominent had to play a key role. If you're going to have Parallax in it, then obviously, uh, eventually, Oliver Queen has to play a role, right? And, and a principal right. one at that. And, and I think that as you look at how we structured the story, the characters that had to be there uh, were there. Um, with Parallax, um, this is something I've seen kind of come up before, specifically with Doomsday. And it's the idea of having a villain who their first time up to bat kind of seems so powerful that there's no way they can really like replicate that success or whatever. How do you, when you go about writing those, how do you kind of like attack the idea of yes, they're powerful, but next time you see them, they're still going to be a threat. Again, I think that gets into um, sort of the specific character uh, and the story that you have. I, I think that that's where you have to be very careful that when you use them then that second time and or that third time, that you have a story that warrants that character and their power levels. You know, it, it has to be worthy of those characters. And uh, I think a good creative mind can find those solutions. I'd agree. Like something I would like to talk to you about in the future possibly would be like Hunter Prey or Doomsday Wars. Um, I feel like sometimes when Doomsday in particular comes up, it's just like a slug fest to see who gets knocked out first. Whereas you would always find creative ways to take him out of the picture, whether it was sending him to the end of time or separating him in, you know, four different teleportation tubes or whatever. I always really appreciated the way you kind of could work around such a strong character like Doomsday as a threat. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I think that's important to do. And I, I've always tried to do that. You know, it, it's sort of like, think of it this way. Um, and this is maybe not fair, but I'll try it anyway. If Galactus is truly as powerful as they say he is, why does he show up every three months? Right. <laughs> you know, if, if Galactus was as powerful as purported to be, you know, he would not even really converse with a human being, much have in-depth dialogue with Reed Richards, right? Yeah. And and what would be more cool than if we had gotten to this point all these years after Galactus had first shown up and he had only been back like three times? Just think of how many. How, what uh, those stories would be and the stories of that magnitude would just be incredible right now. And I think that's part of where I say we have to understand uh, these characters to a certain degree. And But the reality of comics is when they're that damn cool, they're going to come back more often. So <laughs> we just kind of roll with it. Um, so all you can do is try and make the story worthy of those characters and, and put them in situations that keeps their power level elevated. And part of that isn't just saying that they're powerful. You do have to show it. In terms of like power sets, Parallax never really saw like his power set shown prior to zero hour. I think he was maybe in an issue of Guy Gardner just before that. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with the decision to, I guess not only use him as the driving force of zero hour, but dictate like how strong he was in particular. Well, in terms of deciding how strong he was, um, 
we worked real tightly with uh, the Green Lantern office at that time where I could say, help me understand exactly what he can do. What I kept talking about more than anything was his motivation. And if you look at what, okay, so we have to backtrack just a little bit first, right? Okay. So it goes back to when I was working on Superman, when um, Hal Jordan had been located as Green Lantern in Coast City. And as part of the reign of the Superman story, I had the cyborg Superman and Mongol essentially wipe out Coast City. That then is what the Green Lantern team, the editorial team and DC used as motivation to change everything in the Green Lantern universe of books. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, it, that event pushed Hal over the line. Um, it pretty much took apart the entire Green Lantern Corps and brought in Kyle Rayner as the new Green Lantern. So that, that event that we just did in Superman um, that I came up with ended up being the instigator for everything that was happening in Green Lantern. So then let's cut to zero hour. And I, I knew that there was the, um, the general idea that Hal Jordan was going to move up into this character called Parallax. And I, I said, okay, so the motivation in Zero Hour then, and his role in it is he wants to put everything back where it was. He wants to put Co-City back where it was. Does he have the power to do that? And since that motivation seemed to be powerful enough to fuel the story, we said, yes, he does. So, you know, once you're there, once you have motivation and power level meet, then you have a story. And so that's what we started to build around. And that also, that gave us this big reveal in the middle of the story that I think is kind of what elevated us again. You know, I think it's always important that there has to be that sense of juice in a story that comes into it in some places. And when people all of a sudden saw Hal Jordan show up as Parallax, it was like, oh, now we're, now we're hitting on, we're firing on all cylinders. This may be like a really stupid question, but considering that you worked with him for so many years on the Superman books, um, a few years later, Carl Kiesel would go and write Final Night, which involved Hal Jordan's redemption. Was that something that you and him had talked about prior to Final Night at all, or was that just... No, and, and at that point, um, you know, what, what, what often happens, what, what creators have to realize is... When you work on a book, um, you are really asked to adopt that character or group of characters as your own, right? And, and you almost have to feel like you own those characters. In order to really devote yourself to them and to do what it is that has to be done, I think that's the attitude you have to have. But then when it's over with, um, it, you, you go away and you have to have the awareness that now another writer is going to step in and have that same sensibility or, or trying not the same sensibility toward the characters that you have, but the same sensibility about working on that project, which is I will make them my own. So, you know, I knew that at, at some point there was probably going to be uh, someone who would look at Hal Jordan and say, you know, he has to atone for his sins. How are we going to get that done? So that was not, at all a surprise. I think any fan of Hal would know that that was coming. 
for you personally, would you have liked to have seen his time as Parallax to go a little bit longer? Would, um, how satisfied, I guess, were you as the person who kind of defined his big Parallax moment on the, um, I don't want to say villain side, because that, you know, <laughs> kind of however you want to interpret that. Um, I guess, what are your thoughts on Hal as Parallax, and would you have liked to have seen that character stay as Parallax longer than essentially a few years? I would love to do a project um, in which you go back to that time and the events that happened in the DCU weren't reversed. So Superman died and never came back. He stayed mm -hmm. dead. Batman broke his back and never came back. He stayed dead. Hal Jordan became Parallax and stayed Parallax. <laughs> I, I think it would be make for a fascinating set of stories where if you go back to that time, those things weren't put back in place. So Kyle Rayner is still Green Lantern, for example. Um, and, and you just play with it as, you know, if you take the, the sort of fanboy quip, which is no one ever really dies in comics, all right, let's play it that way. Let's see what happens. And, and I think fans would really eat that up. I, I keep saying there's a great way to do that project and um, see what you get. So <clears throat> there's my answer. I would back that. I think that would be a really cool kind of take on all those stories. So hopefully yeah, I mean, if you really, decide to. What you would have is, so out of the four characters that claim to be Superman, if the real Superman never returned, if he stayed dead, then which of them, or would it have been someone else, emerged as the real Superman? Well, it wouldn't have been Cyborg Superman. Would it be Superboy maybe or Steel? I don't know. The Eradicator maybe. Um, which one of them emerged? What? How did history change after that? You know, you would not have John Kent, for example. What? What happened after that to make those things uh, stay the way they were? You know, Co City would have stayed a barren wasteland, stuff like that. So I, I think there would have been fun things to play with. Or would Hal Jordan have been successful? He just remade everything. I don't know, but it'd be fun to play with. If you if you ever pitch that, you have my back. I, I love that idea. So. Um, speaking of changes, um, I was hoping you could speak on some of the characters that did go through changes in the book and mm -hmm. kind of talk about your input, um, kind of how the creative process with those changes were decided on either with you or behind the scenes. Um, so for example, Monarch to Extent and have him kind of become Wave Rider in a way in the book. Yeah. Um, we just thought again, because, um, if, if you go back to Armageddon 2001 and what we had sort of introduced there, um, we thought, you know, there's sort of a logical path here that fits with those characters, Wave Rider included, and, and thought it would make for a good story. And I, I think it did. I think probably the biggest one was Hawkman. Mm -hmm. Could you go into yeah, all Hawkman, of the... <laughs> well, Haw Hawkman was <clears throat> more... Uh, the solution that um, the Hawkman team at that time came up with, and as I recall, it was, I think Archie Goodwin was editing Hawkman then. I think John Ostrander was writing it. And, <clears throat> you know, Hawkman, throughout his history at DC, is like this character that has been re-engineered so many times, sort of just like the Legion of Superheroes then, that people just didn't know what it meant anymore. 
And so <clears throat> that's where their idea of kind of that fusion panel that we saw with all the Hawk characters kind of doing that, uh, that came from the Hawkman mm-hmm. creative team and, and their editorial team. Did they also come up with the design of him as well? Yes. Yeah, that wasn't me. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, or I don't recall, I should say, who exactly came up with that, but uh, that one wasn't me. Were there, I guess, kind of doing a broad stroke over it, was there any of the like character changes that you had come up with? The Justice Society. Um, and, and, you know, people to this day think that I hate the Justice Society or something, which I don't at all. <laughs> um, the, the problem really was, if you were going to have DC characters like Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen shown as being, you know, 46, 7, 8, almost 50 years old, that meant the Justice Society characters were hitting 80, right? Yep. And, and so if you are going to say we have a seamless universe, <clears throat> that's how it's going to work. Because to me, and, and I don't see anything that will ever alter this, the Justice Society is tied to World War II. Right. I mean, that's how we all think of them. That's how we thought of them then. I think that's still how they are thought of as now. And so I said there I came up with two possible solutions. One is maybe we add another Earth here. This is where we get back to a multiverse concept. We have Earth 2 and it is um, wherever that is right now, it is World War Two or just after World War II, something like that. So their characters, those characters are there, and they're all still young and vital, and we go, go read Justice Society comics for it. That was one option. The other option was, if they're here on our world, and these characters are going to stay the age as they are, then they, the Justice Society has to age as well. And <clears throat> as part of that, then, that's where... Uh, a couple of them died, and those that remained, like Jay Garrick, we saw their true ages. Uh, and that was the, the option of the two I came up with that DC wanted to go with. Do you know why they chose that the latter over the former? Was it just to keep it away from going back to the multiverse? Yeah, I think, Josh, there was still that absolute commitment to what had been dealt with in terms of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And, and I'm not saying, I don't know that it was the wrong thing to do at all. I thought the the thing about that at that time is why it was a nice, it, it was nice and it was tight and people understood it. I think they also understood the multiverse going into crisis. I, I never had a problem with it as a reader. But once you adopt it and say we are down to one universe and one timeline, and we have a group of characters that fought in World War II, and we are now, you know, 50 years past World War II, well, then you have to deal with that. And that's where we are at the time zero. Now, you mentioned kind of like how the Justice Society all, you know, either died or aged up. Alan Scott was like the outlier who didn't really, I mean, he lost his ring, but he would become Sentinel and all that. Do you know why he was kind of the odd man out when it came to those kind of big changes? Well, um, I, I know that... Uh, and this may have emanated from the um, Green Lantern office, that one of the things in Green Lantern that they were still trying to do was to hold on to some aspect of the Green Lanterns that they had left, right? So Alan Mm -hmm. Scott was one. You mentioned Guy Gardner earlier. He was another one. 
and and it was we don't want to absolutely wipe out all the green lanterns we want to keep some and be able to use them some way somehow and i think that's what fueled the alan scott decision okay um another one another character that kind of uh had a lot of changes in zero hour was ray palmer yeah and i know you mentioned that he was originally supposed to die and then you kind of fought back against that yeah you remember why they wanted ray to die was it just to have a character death and um, I, I think they, there, there was that suggestion that they wanted to have characters die. Uh, Ray Palmer at that time, he had just, he just plain had a target on his back. He did. <laughs> Sometimes characters hit that level. Uh, my re- re- recollection of the time is Ray Palmer absolutely had the target on his back. He was seen as not interesting. The Adam was seen as not interesting. His power wasn't interesting. It wasn't this, it wasn't that. It, like, the, the Ray Palmer death squad was on the march, you know, and that's all there was to it. So I said, what if we take one of these characters and de-age them and just make them younger? And let's try it with Ray Palmer and see what we get. And then, of course, I took him from there and used, used him in Teen Titans as a, mm-hmm. as a teen. Was that kind of the like caveat is that if you made if you allowed him to survive, you had to do something with him? Yes. <laughs> what? I figured. I don't know that it was necessarily a caveat, but then it was sort of like, well, okay, so if we do this, then what? And I said, well, you know, what about this? Okay, I'll use them in Teen Titans or something like that. But <laughs> but yes, there was, um, at that time, Ray Palmer absolutely had a target on his back. <laughs> um, there was definitely some characters that, with Zero Hour, you had alternate timelines coming up and characters from those timelines being involved. Um Two of the ones specifically I felt were used heavily were Alpha Centurion and Batgirl. Mm -hmm. Was that your call to use them heavily? Was that something that they suggested you use? Like how was, what was the choice to use certain characters in zero? Uh, I know I was the one who came up and said, let's use the um, Barbara Gordon Batgirl character. And Alpha Centurion uh, was one that came up because when we first started to plan it and talk about it, there was some thought that maybe Alpha Centurion would spin off into his own book. And, mm-hmm. and that never ended up happening. Uh, it didn't quite go forward. And those are the things that just sometimes happen. But obviously, since I was working on the Superman books, I you know, knew the character and liked the character anyway, and, and he seemed to fit okay. Were you thinking about using any of the other characters that were kind of used in the other monthly books, like Triumph or pre-crisis Superboy, any of the other ones? Or do you think it would have changed your story up had you used them? Well, anytime you change, start to change the characters, you do change the story. It's just a question of how much. And and I think what you saw is us wanting to give um, some attention to the characters uh, that you just mentioned, like a triumph or like damage, for example, things like that, that we, we wanted to give those characters screen time as well. So this is a really dumb, another dumb question, but it was something, it's, it's something I've always noticed in your stories when you do a time involved time travel and it's the like rainbow colors streaking and all the look, the whole look of the time stream. The, the, uh, I, I, I love that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was going to like what that choice is, like why well, you do that. It's funny because I just ended up using it in, um, the Generations Shattered and Generations Forged project that I did mm-hmm. where 
uh, I think some of the people who were working on it had never really taken note of that before. And they said, yeah, this is what the time travel effect is, man. This is what it looks like. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of why, I just think um, over the uh, different eras of DC, we've seen many characters like fly forward in time, right? And one of the things we used to see and I can always imagine like Wayne Boring or Al Plastino drawing this as Superman flying through time. And they would draw like concentric circles around him and it would actually, then they would have a letter or write in, you know, 1955, 1932, 1868. So <laughs> we knew he was going back through time. But often it, it had um, kind of a multicolor hues, uh, coloring job to it. And that's sort of where I drew from. And, and I just said, but let's make it look a little more energetic so that when we did um, Armageddon 2001 and I came up, Archie Goodwin and I created the Wave Rider character as, as mm -hmm. someone. And, and the way we always talk about Wave Rider is if you think of the Silver Surfer flying through space, Wave Rider is flying through time. Mm -hmm. Same kind of thing. He's, he's sort of in his own element at that point, flying through time. So I came up with the black portions on his costume that when he is flying through time, radiate with the different colors of chronal energy. And he speeds through time with almost sort of a flash speed effect, which I always thought looked pretty good. I mean, I think it looks dramatic and it looks great once it's in print. And so I started playing around with that then and just continued it into my time travel work long after that and still do it today. <laughs> I think it works. <laughs> I think so too. I love it. Every time I see a time travel story, that's the thing I'm hoping to see. <laughs> Thank you. And so I guess I'll, the last question I'll kind of leave off with with zero hour is so in, in the same wizard magazine I've brought up multiple times so far, you talked about how you hope nobody would have to go back and fix things that you either did or forgot like five years from that point. Yep. And now we're closing in on almost 30 years later. Mm -hmm. How do you feel you did looking back at it? Are you happy with how it turned out? Is there any changes you wish you would have done? Um, I I don't know that I would look back. Well, first of all, when I said that, I knew that someone was going to come back and fix it again later. <laughs> That's, that, that goes back to what I was talking about earlier, right? You, you mm -hmm. just know that is going to happen. And I knew it when I said that, that we kind of had the theory then that every 10 years there would need to be an adjustment, right? And it, it's just like, you know, you're, every 50,000 miles, man, you got to take the car in to have the mechanic do a tune-up, right? So we always knew that was going to be the case. Uh, I, I think it's happening far more frequently now than I ever would have guessed it was coming. But at that time, you know, if, if zero hour, or I'm sorry, if crisis had been 85, we did zero hour 10 years later, and I figured, okay, 2005, there'll be another one. And I I would say that's, that was my expect, my realistic expectation at that time was, yeah, every 10 years, the DC universe would continue to have to get adjustments made. Because when Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster sat down and created Superman, and he first came out in 1938, they never saw a situation where that character was going to be published 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, and now it's maybe even, we're able to say 100 years later. And that he would also be associated with all these characters in a universe, and how are they all going to fit? I mean, if, if you have 
a famous Superman story where he meets John F. Kennedy, which you know happened. Is that continuity? Is it not? How does it fit? How does it work? Well, maybe we're not meant to really answer all these questions, but we it, it's my way of saying we constantly have to kind of uh, work around the edges to mold, shape, and and kind of, like I said, tune up and adjust things so everything can still hang together all these years later. Yeah, I think you're kind of, you hit the nail on the head with the reinventing everything every 10 years, because I feel like that seems to be kind of where it falls with Infinite Crisis, New 52. Not quite 10 years after that, but clearly you've been doing this long enough that you kind of can tell what the future <laughs> holds. Do you have any predictions for where comics will be 10 years from now? Oh, I wish I knew if I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd start... No, I, I think right now, actually, in terms of 10 years from now, um, I think there's a great deal of uncertainty because there are a lot of external factors that are coming yeah. into it, not the least of which is that um, the Internet and the digital revolution that we're seeing in everything is having a profound impact on reading material across the board. What does that do to comics? I don't know for sure. Um, I, I think we would probably always have a, a paper presence of some kind, but I don't necessarily know what that will be. Add mm. to that, you know, corporate ownership, which is now a much bigger reality for both Marvel and DC than it had been before. And I can't necessarily begin to guess what it will actually be. And it all is combined with this idea that these characters in many, many ways are much more popular than they were before. Um, you know, it's it's amazing to me that this week, if we want to, we can turn on, uh, I think Black Lightning is on tonight. This takes place on a Monday. Uh, tomorrow night is Flash and Lois and Clark, or I'm sorry, Superman and Lois. Um, and, and then there's going to be Legends of the DCU, and we have WandaVision, and we have all these things on TV. We have the movies, and and I don't know where we are on this continuum of heroic fantasy and where it will take us in 10 years in terms of comics. It's I, I'm not, I, maybe there are minds far brighter than mine that can predict that, but I can't. It's nerve wracking, but it's kind of exciting too. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. And, and on both counts. Yes. So my co-host wanted me to ask you one question and it's kind of not zero hour related, even though he's come up in the past. Um, he wanted me to ask you about the origin of booster gold. Okay. So could you just kind of talk about how you came up with the character? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, if you go back to, say, 1984-85, and celebrity culture, I think around that time was starting to take a little bit of a different turn. And, you know, <clears throat> what we were seeing is, there, there had always been Hollywood magazines and stuff like that, but what we were seeing is, you know, uh, the first issue of People magazine had come out a few years earlier. We were starting to get to this era where we'd have shows like Entertainment Tonight and things like that, that that would start to get built around celebrity culture a little more. And around that time, um, I remember watching the 84 Olympics and uh, the announcers talking about a particular athlete who already had an endorsement deal set up and they hadn't even yet won their Olympic medals or anything. And I thought, 
And that's that's sort of where uh, the theory of how Booser would conduct himself would come into it, which is someone who would play it as a celebrity, uh, play the hero game as a celebrity and use it to make money and and by endorsing products and stuff like that. And so um, when I first exp explained it to Dick Giordano, who was, you know, uh, editor in chief at D.C., he said, oh, you mean like a hero for hire? And I said, no, not a hero for hire. <laughs> Very different than that. Someone who is is um, using, who, who does not have a secret identity, who is using what he has to make money while still doing right at the same time because he enjoys the celebrity aspects of it. He enjoys the fun of it. He enjoys the notability that it brings to him. And that's who Booster Gold is. And, you know, obviously, in terms of the name, um, gold signifies that sort of interest in, in money and, and wealth. And Booster uh, has two meetings that made it perfect. One is if you to boost something is to heist something or another meaning of boosting something is to steal it. You know, you boosted this and <laughs> and it, which was a little more common uh, in terms of playing in that time than now. But that's and that's. That's where the initial thoughts of the character came from, and that's where the name came from. Uh, what inspired the costume? I just did a whole bunch of sketches and and came up with something I like. And I think if you if I look back on it now, um, you know, I knew I wanted to use blue and gold as as the color pattern because I think that's just a good looking combination that I really like. So I, I knew I wanted to build around that, and I. I think that, um, you know, there's a, one of the Justice League cartoons, he's confused for a Green Lantern. And I think, yeah, as I look at it, maybe there's a little aspect of a Green Lantern influence in the costume. Um, so there's there's that as well. And maybe even a little bit of uh, uh, the Marvel character, you know, Captain Marvel. So I, I wasn't thinking it consciously at the time, but the more I look at it now, I kind of wonder if those were way deep in the back of my mind somehow. Well, Dan, that's all I have. Um, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time out to do this. I sure. greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Is there anything else you want to plug before I let you go? Uh, I think for those who are interested, which I hope is everybody, um, I had mentioned Generation Shattered and Generations Forged a little bit earlier. Uh, Shattered came out a month ago. Generations Forged just came out last week. And it does set up something I think that could be potentially fun and, and set up a lot of fun story material within the DC universe. So go ahead and check it out there. It's, it's got some great story and art. They're both 80 pages long, but in that context of 160 pages, you get a story with a beginning, middle and an end and something that sets up the future potentially. So give it a look. It's fantastic. And I'm so glad to have finally seen that villain come back. Oh, okay, I wasn't great. sure if I would, but I was so happy to see him. Yeah, he, he actually fit well. I, I again, I think I, I wish we would do that more as creators is is to find villains and good characters that exist and use them more often, continue to build them up. If they only show up once or twice and never again, you aren't using the resources that are there to really make things work. So I, I think we need to do that better. I've always thought that. Well, I'm glad you brought him back. Thank you. Well, Dan, with that, I will let you go, and thank you again. My pleasure, Josh. It was great fun.
thank you for taking the time to check out the interview. Hopefully it wasn't too painful hearing me struggle to form coherent sentences, but maybe I'll be better if given chances like this in the future. Dan, if you're listening to this, I cannot thank you enough for not only sparing your time, but for all the stories that helped shape who I am as a comics fan. As I mentioned, our actual Zero Hour episode will drop in April, and some of this information here will also be mentioned in that episode as well. Please check out that episode when it drops the first week of April. Also, please check out Dan's recent work with Generations Shattered and Forged, and pick up some of his previous work. I'm quite sure there's a character that you love that he has touched on before. And don't forget to also follow him on Twitter at TheDanJurgens, or check out his website, danjurgens.com. You can follow us on Twitter at HyperTimePod, or email us at HyperTime2Podcast at gmail.com. So if you have any suggestions for topics you would like us to talk about, throw them our way through either outlet. Um, Check out my own personal Twitter, where it's mostly video games and (laughs) comics, and I am at J-M-I-L-L-E-9-9, or my co-host Alan's Twitter at TheAlanMuir, that's T-H-E-A-L-L-A-N-M-U-I-R. I'm not going to do Alan's Tweet of the Week. That's 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 his thing, so I'll leave that to him. Um, check out our website, vidu.tv, where show notes for Hypertime episodes go up. But most importantly, if you like video game content, that's where you'll find some as well. Um, we have other podcasts that focus on video games, such as Win, which is our gaming weekend news podcast. We have the Players Club podcast, which is kind of the more laid-back video game podcast where we talk about what we've been playing. Um, sometimes there's a guest on um, a little topic that's suggested each episode, stuff like that. We also have a YouTube channel for VGU TV. It has a good variety of video game content to check out as well. So look us up there and subscribe um, for this particular podcast. Please spread the word to anyone you know who likes comic book content, especially if they like to learn a little bit something about it. My goal is to find information about both creators and stories behind the hobbies that we love and hopefully I can educate you all on something at the very least. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you all further down in the hypertime. Take care. Bye. This has been a VGU.TV production. For all of the hottest hot takes and other opinions on video games, music, and a lot more, tune in to VGU.TV.